Let's open up our Bibles this morning to John chapter 3. We will uh, finish out the section that we started last, uh, just before Christmas. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Heavenly Father, come upon us today and open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit that our minds and hearts would understand, we would see the truth that is before us here. We would see it with eyes that are empowered by you so that we might live these things out, that we might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ And walk in his ways, we ask in his name. Amen. John chapter 3, and I'll read verses 18 through 21. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, when when Christ came into the world, it started a uh, chain of events. Now, this chain of events had been... Uh, determined from before we showed up on the scene. Um, I think last week I talked about the the preacher that I heard. Well, maybe that was in Sunday school. Well, I heard another preacher on the way to church this morning, and and he the question was was basically I'm going to sum up. How is it that or why would God make us if He knew he, we were going to sin? If we knew if He knew we were going to disappoint Him? If He knew all these things were going to go on? I mean, and, the, and the person was talking from a very human perspective. says, I certainly wouldn't go through all that trouble for people. Okay? Well, we have to understand that when there was only the Heavenly Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it was agreed on and the plan was that these things would take place. Okay? So that the fall of man did not catch God off guard. He didn't go, man, how did they get, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do now? I have to go to plan B. Um, hey, Jesus, would you give your life for these people? No, that was not plan B. This was plan A from before the foundations of the world, that these things would take place. And, and we mentioned in Sunday school today, and, and I was hoping somebody would remember, there's a hymn basically that says, Oh, glorious fall that brought this blessed Savior. I don't think it's in our hymnals, but it's somewhere in some hymnal. Look that up for me, please. Okay, it's somewhere out there. Well, these events cannot be stopped. Now, we didn't understand all these events really until Christ came, and then John began to talk about these things here, and that we understand that that once he has come, things will happen, and he will come again. And he came the first time to save. He comes the next time for judgment, for judgment. 
His first coming, we find salvation and we find grace and we find healing and mercy and joy. But this first coming starts the chain of events that will end in his second coming. And his second coming will bring judgment upon those who are not in Christ. Now, this principle of his judgment is spoken of in in verse 18. Uh, Let me just reiterate. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is an inevitable result of his first coming. Even though judgment was not his purpose, it's going to arrive sooner or later because sin has consequences. Oh, no, some of that is, is obvious to us, but we have to understand both the, the picture of our own sin and sin as in the larger context, sin has consequences. So let's turn and, and have an illustration of this from, um, from, from a, 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 a point of view that is not, is not from Scripture, but it really elaborates on this idea of sin has consequences. Now, how many of you have read Dostoyevsky, something from Dostoyevsky? Okay. Um, how many of you read The Brothers, Karamazov? Oh, you are spectacular. Okay, Crime and Punishment? Okay. Oh, getting better. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, this comes from Crime and Punishment. So let me, for those of you who don't know about Crime and Punishment, I gave you the summation of it. It's about this young student, um, uh, Raskolnikov, and he commits this crime. Okay. And it quickly gets out of hand for him. Uh, Now, he is poor, and so he's going to murder this pawnbroker who he views really as as no importance, uh, not a nice person at all, and and so he's not even thinking that the world is going to miss this person. Um, So he shows up, and he's going to kill her, and in the midst of this murder, somebody else shows up, okay, and he has to kill that person as well. So it's kind of the crime has already gone down the tube, so to speak. It's already gotten way more complex than he thought. Well, as a result of this crime, Raskolnikov thinks he's going to live the, the life of Riley from now on because the pawnbroker's got some money, he's going to take her money, and it's all going to be good. Well, in reality, he doesn't even take everything that is there. I think he is so shaken by the crime that he has committed that he just grabs a little bit and, and heads out the door. But from the moment of the crime, he knows judgment is coming. And it's interesting, and, and, and in typical Russian author fashion, it takes 900 pages to, ta- to say all this, okay? Uh, you know, it goes on with all the minutia of character development and how he feels and, and, and all the struggle that he has. So he, he, he bungles kind of this, this crime, and it expands, and he only gets a little bit of what he thought. And then from then on, he is, he's kind of held in this, 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 this feverish state for a while where he's wrestling with his own guilt and, and he, he's, he, he, you know, he kind of takes these stolen items and he hides them under a rock and he, he tries desperately to clean his clothes and clean his hands as if he could somehow wash away the crime from, from his person. Um, and, and the fever kind of comes and goes and he's delirious and, and it's almost as if in, the, in this fever he, he wants to reveal that he is the one who's committed the crime, but yet he doesn't want to because he knows what, there's a crime and there must be punishment that comes along with it. And he ends up even taking the, the what little bit he, he actually took uh, and, and trying to give it away almost to, to make amends for his crime, to remove the guilt. 
I mean, crime and punishment. Raskolnikov stood condemned from the moment he committed the crime. And, and really we find it's not till later in the book, after hundreds of pages of, of development and story and guilt and all this, when he has been uh, convicted and sent off to Siberia, and the, the, um, the, um, um, the, the prostitute with the heart of gold, Sonia, goes off to Siberia with him. It's not until after about eight years in the prison camp that he comes to grips with, with repentance and forgiveness and, and really begins to, to understand uh, what has happened. Now, sin has its consequences, and it's usually only the hardest of hearts that has repeatedly been involved in sin that can stay in sin and not give it another thought. I mean, it's like the, the person who doesn't wear gloves, who works with an axe or something, after repeated years of work, that his hands are so callous that he doesn't get a blister. If you and I walk out with an axe in 10 minutes, we've got blisters, okay? We're, our skin is sensitive to it. In fact, Raskolnikov really attempted to almost intellectualize or rationalize his sin and his actions. He said the pawnbroker is a nasty person. She has no real value in the world. And in fact, the world will be better off without her. All these things are kind of running through his mind as he goes and does this. But at the heart of Raskolnikov, as much as he tries to deny it, he can't get away from the fact that he has committed a crime, and he knows that punishment weighs upon him, and judgment will come to him. He knows there are consequences to the reality of his actions. Sin has a penalty. Well, this applies spiritually as well. Now, when the gospel is heard, we understand, now, now listen to this carefully, when the gospel is heard, we understand that the hearer has already made up their mind. In their humanness, they've already made up their mind. Now remember, Christ did not come into a world that was hanging in the balance. We looked at this last week. He didn't come so that we might add enough good things to our good side of our scale to push us over the edge to him. He came into what kind of world? It's lost. Lost and without hope. So he has come into a world that has already made a choice. It's already saying, I love sin. Okay, I don't, I don't want my sin to be revealed, as, as we'll see in a moment. But he comes to bring light. He comes to save. He comes to reach into a world that is already lost. And, and with the love of, of, of our Heavenly Father who has sent his Son into the world to give his life, with that love, he says, I'm gonna, you're going to be mine. You're going to be mine for all eternity. Jesus came into a world that was lost, a world that was without hope. The Bible doesn't teach us that we uh, are basically good and we just need to overcome a couple character flaws. We need a little bit of counseling to get over the hump and, and figure out really who we are. The, the Bible says that we're lost. We're sinful. Okay? Who understands the human heart? It is desperately wicked. And you think, well, I, I didn't think I was that bad. But it's in our very nature who we are. We are desperately wicked. The approach to sin in our society is very superficial. The approach to sin in Scripture goes right to the heart, goes right to the depth of our very need. It is not a band-aid. It is not a change of behavior. It is a change of nature. 
that we need. And that change of nature can only come through the work of Christ. David reminds us that we were sinful in our mother's womb. Isaiah says we're all like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned to its own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon whom? Upon Christ. Paul says there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. Isn't that hard? Isn't that harsh? It, but, but that's what Paul says. Now, yeah, but I, I, didn't you seek after God at some point? Didn't you show some interest in God at some point? Well, see, John also says that God does what? He draws us unto himself. Okay? Were you seeking after God? God was drawing you unto him. Then the scripture says, you know, ask, seek, knock. Yes, God's drawing us unto himself. See, these can be kind of hard words, but yet they're the words from scripture. Unless the Lord intervenes in his life, we're all going to face the punishment for our crime, and that crime is sin, and that punishment is eternal, eternal damnation. I know some of you were here Christmas Eve, and you're going, hey, yeah, Rand, but sin's not my fault, right? Sin is Adam's fault, yeah, but everybody who's a descendant of Adam is tainted by that sin, and we can't get rid of it. We can't, like Raskolnikov, we can't go in and just try to wash off the blood and the stain from our lives. That doesn't work. It must be the blood of Christ. Now, isn't that a strange thing? That usually, if here you are, and, and you, uh, I, I used to get these uh, because of allergies, you know, nosebleeds, okay? And, and you wear a white shirt. Here you are sitting at church in August, okay? Or no, let's go, uh, it's in May, and the allergy season is, is in high gear, and you're sitting in church, and all of a sudden, your sinuses let loose and, and you, you bleed all over this great new white shirt. What are you going to do with that white shirt? Uh, we would think it's going to be stained. You know, I got to bleach it and I got to try to wash it out. But here in scripture, it says the only way you can get your robes as a believer washed white is through the blood of Christ. But it's the sacrifice of Christ. It is that love that he, he has for us has for his own, that he would give his life for us. Well, why are we condemned? Let's look at 3.18. Why are we condemned? Now, remember, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. This is why he has come. But there's also this talk of condemnation. He who believes in him is not judged. Okay? We're not judged. Why? Because Christ has paid the price for us. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? They did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So to not believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus, which means Jehovah saves is to not believe in salvation, is not to believe in your need for salvation, is not to believe in the work of Christ. Okay, Most people do not have difficulty believing in, in God in an exis, kind of an existential way. The last survey I read had 92% of Americans believing in God. Now, they did not define God. They just said, do you believe in God? 92% said yes. 
20% of those self-professed atheists said they believed in God. And, and so I'm pretty sure they weren't defining God in the same way that we would. Okay? But it gives you some idea of that there are people who still you know, believe in God, even though they have these issues, and most people believe in, in how they're going to define it. And Scripture says that a fool in his heart denies the existence of God. Only a fool denies the existence of God. Romans says it's clear by creation that God exists. Now, it, it is interesting that from recent studies, those who deny the existence of God, those would be self-attesting atheists. Self, and these are philosophical atheists. Okay, now, some of those of you who work in the technical fields might come across scientific atheists who simply say, I cannot scientifically prove the existence of God, therefore I don't believe in the existence of God. Then you have the philosophical atheists who, as just on um, general purposes, in their worldview, it's not an issue of proving God, they have no room for God, they don't want God in their life, therefore they deny the existence of God. Self-admitted philosophical atheists are found employed in two areas in particular, in the highest percentage in two areas. One would be, which we would typically assume, would be academia. They are disproportionately found in academia. Secondly, they are disproportionately found in government bureaucracy. Okay? So the people who are teaching are young minds and molding them, and the people who are running things are atheists. Now, that's a pretty broad brush, but, you know, it's not quite that clear. But disproportionately, they are found in those two disciplines in particular. In particular. Well, look at the encounters that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders. I mean, the Jewish leaders of his day were the high achievers. They were the experts in religion. They knew the law. They were the ones who were supposed to be keeping the law and helping the people keep the law as well. But when their teachings and their lives came face to face with the life of Jesus, and and, they held their lives up to what Jesus said and, and his life, well, they didn't look all that good. And then they looked at Jesus, and instead of trying to readjust their lives, they decided, well, we'll just kill him instead of adjusting our lives because, you know, he can't be right. We have to be right. His life and teaching exposed their corruption. His life of purity and his understanding and teaching of the word exposed their laxness and their sinfulness. John says that men hate the light. The light comes into the world and men hate it. Why do we hate the light? Because we love the darkness. Okay, we love the darkness. The light exposes our deeds. It exposes our weaknesses. It exposes our, uh, the fallacy of our own personal uh, views and beliefs. It makes it clear that our works cannot save us. This is what the light does. That's why we like the darkness so much. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than lights. Why? Rather than light, why? Because our deeds are evil. We love our wickedness and therefore we hate the light. Okay? Unbelief is not only intellectual, but it is moral. It is a moral outgrowth 
I mean, what stops us from believing? Well, we love our sin. We are like cockroaches. I know, that's not the best illustration. Although you might be thinking that somebody here really epitomizes a cockroach. But if you walk into your garage at 2 in the morning and flip on the light, okay, you might see a cockroach dart somewhere. Because as soon as that light comes on, it does not want to be seen. It want to, wants to hide in the darkness. Okay? And as soon as the light of truth comes upon our lives, we do not like it. We want to hide away from it. We do not like that to be seen. John says the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why did we love the darkness? Because our deeds are evil. And when it's dark, nobody can see our deeds. Now Huxley, Huxley, what was Huxley's name? Uh, yeah, he, he wrote Brave New World, Brave New World. I should, I should have these down. Uh, Huxley, who was an atheist, once admitted that his rejection of Christianity stemmed from his desire to sin. He wrote in his work, Ends and Means, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had not, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. Okay? Now, you, you grasp that. Motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Because if it has meaning... If it, if it does not have meaning, then there's no valid reason why I should not do whatever I want. Huxley writes, for myself, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation, both sexual and political. He said, if I believe in God, then I must believe this life has meaning. And if this life has meaning, then I cannot go and do whatever I please to do. Let's look on a little bit further. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. If you believe in Christ, you're not condemned. Romans 8 says there is therefore what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's an important word because the act of the culmination of condemnation happens when? The culmination of condemnation happens in the future. Okay? He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged when? Already. Okay? And, and judgment does not come to fulfillment until you stand before Christ. And there's judgment. Okay? That is it. The truth of condemnation begins now, though. The truth of condemnation happens now. The act of condemnation is future. It's much like what Paul writes in Romans 8 when he talks about um, uh, call, justified, and at the end it's glorified. Glorification doesn't happen until the end. But it is talked about as if it happens now because of the Lord's work in our lives now. And notice in verse 19 the character 
of the condemnation. This is the judgment that the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light lest his deeds are exposed. We like to think that people don't come to Christ because they don't have enough information. Because they haven't heard enough of Christ. But that's not what it says here. Now, yes, you have to hear about Christ. That's very clear. And, and if you don't hear about Christ, then you, you can't believe because you don't know he exists. You can know the God exists from the world, but Christ, it takes revelation. It takes the word of God. It takes somebody sharing the things of Christ. Or sometimes we believe that, that people don't believe in Christ just because they're, they're ignorant of Christ. But it says here that people don't believe in Christ. Why? Because they love their sin. Now think about the day before you were a believer. And maybe you were just apathetic. Maybe you just didn't understand it. Maybe it just was, and maybe you'd heard the gospel 50 times by then. It says here, what? They love the darkness. We don't come to Christ because we love our sin. We don't believe in Jesus Christ because we love sin so much. Okay, I love Randy so much that I didn't want to give up Randy and take on Christ. Randy was just so important to me. Okay, See, a lack of knowledge you can fix, right? Oh, well, let me sit down and explain things to you. Let me explain things to you better. No, I love my sin. The Lord has to come. The Lord must open your eyes. The light must shine in your life. Flip over to Romans chapter 1. Verse 32. And this is just one illustration of loving the darkness. Just one illustration. There are plenty of times where we see that men love sin. In chapter 1, verse 32, he's, he's given this, this section of how people who have you know, denied God and, and just live for themselves, and kind of verse 32, he sums it up here. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Even though they know even though they have heard it, they still pursue it. And not only pursue it, but they get others to come along with them and say, this is a good thing. Come on, jump in. The water is fine. The water of sin is fantastic. Come on in. This is what happens here. But somebody says, I just can't understand the gospel. It's too complex. No, it's not too complex. You just don't believe. What do you mean, I just don't believe? That's what Scripture says. If you would believe, you would be saved. You love your sin. Your deeds are evil. Okay, You're not, in you're not about to step into the light unless the Lord brings regeneration upon your life. You hate the light. I mean, we, we all, before we came to Christians, we hated the light. Whether, whether we were nice people or not, we still hated the light. Why? Because we were sinful and we loved our sin. It, 
There's no ignorance in Romans chapter 1. There's a love of darkness. John does not say that those who practice evil are neutral towards Jesus. Rather, they hate Jesus. They hate the light. Now, many unbelievers would object. I don't hate Jesus. I just don't particularly care about him. Okay, I got other things in my life. I'm pretty busy. They think that Jesus may have been a good man. Maybe he was even a prophet. He taught a lot of good things. They might even feel bad that he was killed. But they would protest if we said we ha- they hated Jesus. But John says that they hate Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself told us, he said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it. Why? Because its deeds are evil. J.C. Ryle points out that eventually sinners will get what they desire while they're here on earth. They love the darkness. They'll be cast into the outer darkness. They hated the light. They'll be shut out from the light for all eternity. And God will be perfectly just in condemning those who reject Christ. They saw the light, but they hated it. They turned away from it because they loved their sin. So how do you fix a love of sin? There's a greater love that comes, and that comes through Christ. A greater love than a love for the world. A greater love than we had for a love of our own sin. That is the light, Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon says that if you continue to think about it, that is believing in Christ, you will think yourself right into hell. See, the light comes and we go, oh, that's great, Rand. I think, I think I'm going to chew on this some more. I think I need to, to have some more education. Well, we just found out that it's not lack of education. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of belief. Why? Because we love our sin. And Spurgeon says, you go and continue to think, you're going to think yourself right into hell. D.L. Moody was running a series of um, crusades back in Chicago and, uh, in the 1870s. And here he was on Sunday night, October 8th, 1871. And he says at the close of the service, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? He said to the crowd, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sunday we will come to Calvary and the cross and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. For you historians, you know that October 8, 1871 was the night of the great Chicago fire. Many of the people who were in that audience that night perished in the fire. And in fact, Moody writes at a later time, he says, you could hear the bells of the fire engines going by the building, and we gave it no thought. Moody said, that was the greatest mistake of my life. I let people walk out of the building who would that night die, and I didn't challenge them with the things of Christ. That today is the day of salvation. That today you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can be saved. And that's what we must do today. I I don't know where you are. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of your salvation. Because he has come and he says, I love you and I care for you enough that my son should die for you. Today, believe upon him. Let's pray. Lord, you... You sent, Heavenly Father, you sent your Son into this world that he should give his life for us, that we might be saved. Yes, Lord, 
We love darkness. We love our sin. When that light of grace shines in our lives, we tend to turn away. But Lord, when you call our name, when you call us by name and say, no longer are you my enemy, but now you're my child, come to me. When you open our eyes to the light, when you open our eyes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you take us and draw us unto yourself and pull us out of the darkness and into the glorious light, it is not something that we need to go and think about. We simply say, yes, Lord. Today is the day of my salvation. For Christ has called my name. And I understand today that he has given his life for me. That I will never be the same. That the things of Christ are now more real to me than they have ever been. That the truth of the gospel is now clear to me. And Lord, a sin still might be in my life, but I want the things of Christ more because that is a love greater. The love that you have for me is greater than that love I had for sin. The love that you have for me is enough to send your son to Calvary, shed his blood that we might be washed in the blood of Christ. So today, Lord, move in our hearts that we would confess Christ as our Lord and Savior that we would believe in our hearts and that our lives would never be the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.